Last week's program, we had a fascinating talk with Dr. Douglas Prednia about his excellent new book, Overhauling America's Healthcare Machine. It's subtitled, Stop the Bleeding and Save Trillions. It's an important topic, and we didn't want to get it lost in the shuffle by spreading it out over several weeks, so we will continue our discussion today. All right, Dr. Prednia, when we were talking last time about this, uh, about this topic of insurance companies, we talked a little bit about rationing, and you talk in the book about covert and overt rationing. I think we should probably mention that that rationing really is an inherent part of the world of insurance and to some degree it's always going to be that and yet there's there's sort of better forms of it and worse forms of it uh, let's talk about that the, the problem with uh, the world is that resources are finite and people's wants are infinite so that everything in the world ends up being rationed more or less um, even even water is rationed clearly uh, depending upon where you live in California is a good place to be rationing water except I guess this year where the the rain's been so, so heavy. In healthcare, we can easily consume uh, 100% of our gross national product in healthcare goods and services uh, if we allow ourselves to do that. So the question is, how do you ration things? How do you come up with a fair and equitable distribution of healthcare goods and services? And there are many different ways people have, have, have come up with, either, either in fact or in theory, um, to do that. One way is to have a central authority do the rationing, which is the case in the National Health Service in England. And what they've done is they've set up organizations. Uh, there's particularly an organization called uh, NICE, um, the National Health Service will or will not pay for, um, uh, based upon the, the central authority's assessment of whether the treatments are worthwhile or not. And that's one way to do things. The problem with that system, however, is that patient situations are so different and diseases behave so differently and um, uh, um, people's, people's um, uh, individual sense of value and individual sense of what's right for them are so different that broad rules like that tend to be uh, very troublesome when you try to reduce them down to the clinic level. And I'll, I'll give you a, an example of that. There, there's a big trend now um, to set up what are called guidelines of care, which are basically where people set up um, broad rules to try to help deliver care in the most appropriate way. And um, there's a, there are a lot of uh, uh, federal programs now based around pay for performance where doctors are, are paid or not paid or penalized or not penalized, depending upon how they behave given these guidelines of care that have been created by some central authority. Well, the problem with that is that when you come down to individual cases, a broad guideline of care may or may not be appropriate to an individual case. So let's take uh, the case of, of, um, of looking for protein in the urine of patients who are diabetic. There is actually a, a study that was done of the compliance of of a bunch of uh, very enthusiastic doctors 
um, uh, who were had diabetic patients and were supposed to be following this guideline. And what people found was that about 45% of the time, they didn't follow the guideline, and they didn't look for protein in the urine of patients who were diabetic. And so the immediate assumption was, well, these doctors are not practicing good medicine, and what's the problem here? But the problem is, when you look at it and you ask them, why are you not following this guideline? The answer is, well, it made no sense in this particular case. So, for example, we may know already that a patient who has diabetes is already spilling protein into their urine. They're already, they're already um, uh, having kidney damage uh, from their diabetes. And once you have kidney damage from diabetes, it never goes away. So there's no point in checking the, the urine for protein because we already know it's going to be there. Right. And to check it according to the guideline is a waste of time and money. <laughs> so, so when you ration things according to making broad sweeping statements and saying, this is how it's going to happen, you end up with lots of exceptions and lots of cases where that actually makes people worse off rather than better off um, because individual circumstances are, are different. Another way of rationing is by pricing. And, in fact, that's the way a lot of health care is rationed in the United States today. Um, it's the way almost everything in the United States is rationed, whether it's gasoline or food or whatever. People who are willing to pay the marginal price, which is the, the price that uh, the last unit is selling for of, of whatever it is you want to buy, um, they're the ones, if they're willing to pay um, at least that price, Everyone who's willing to pay that price will get the good or service. And in healthcare, one problem that people come up with is they say, well, gosh, that's not really fair because people may not be able to afford that. Um, but that's why we have insurance. It's not only why we have insurance, but, but it's also um, why it makes sense in some cases to provide healthcare and subsidize healthcare for people who couldn't normally afford it. Now, the the problem with this is if you simply give people as much as they want or everything that they want, as is the case with, say, um, Medicaid in many cases or, or many um, high-benefit insurance policies or even some aspects of Medicare, people tend to use too much. And so it's often very valuable to have a component of health care which is rationed according to price by something like a, a health savings account where you say to people, well, tell you what, um, for the first $3,000 of all your medical spending, it's going to come out of a health savings account, which you could use for some other purposes. So, for example, if you save that money until retirement, you could use it in retirement. Or the interest from the money, you could go out and buy an iPad, too, or something. Um, and that kind of system whereby you, you mix insurance with a means of allowing people to use pricing to determine how much a given good or service is worth to them actually is a better method of rationing frequently than, um, than something that's uh, dictated from above because it allows people to adjust based upon their own needs and preferences. Well, you have a nice addendum in your book that I think is worthy of mention, uh, talking about government guidelines. The government has a set of guidelines on how doctors should address the issue of smoking cessation. Nice idea in theory, but when you look at how long this list is, it's crazy if one series would try to do it by the book. And I thought that was, that, that was quite amusing that 
again, how you can have a great idea starting with, but it can just get lost in detail. Uh, that, that particular guideline is 196 pages. <laughs> oh, so you only <laughs> excerpted it. I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you had the whole thing. No, no, oh, no. Oh, my. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother. That was just a single chart oh. from the... <laughs> oh, 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 my mistake. <laughs> Holy mackerel. And, and those kinds of problems occur all over, and... and uh, uh, and, and that's really uh, much of the problem that we have with the involvement of government in, in, in health care is that people start out with good intentions frequently. In fact, that's why my blog is called The Road to Health, H-E-L-L-P-H. <laughs> they start out with good intentions, but by the time they finish, uh, you've ended up making a complete disaster of things because you've tried to anticipate every possible uh, every possible case with some kind of rule that's broad enough to include them, but uh, uh, not detailed enough to, to handle the exceptions. And, and this, this guideline of smoking is one example of that. If you actually applied that guideline for every patient you saw, um, you would have no time whatsoever uh, to do a physical exam or provide any other care for that patient. It's just not possible. And, of course, this naturally leads to a segue, uh, and maybe the single thing from your book that made me the most dumbfounded and angry was a jerk lawyer out there who's now warning the 50 states' health commissioners in the U.S. He's planning to start suing doctors who are killing their patients, he says, because they're not following the federal guidelines to the letter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> medical malpractice we have to talk about a bit, too. That's just, it's, it's out of control. There, there's actually an interesting addendum to that. Um, it just came out that um, uh, there are now um, uh, there is a recent lawsuit for uh, against a doctor who told a patient that they were fat, um, in what the patient perceived to be an unfeeling and uncaring way, and so they were being sued for that. <laughs> However. Um, people, uh, there is another organization that is now offering to sue doctors um, if they do not tell patients that they are fat, uh, under the premise that allowing an obese patient to come into the office and leave the office without, without specific counseling, gui guidance, and treatment constitutes a form of malpractice. And so... And so we're in a, a social situation where, again, you, you, your, your doctor uh, may be late in seeing you because he or she feels damned if they do, and they feel damned if they don't uh, take care of people in, the way, in, in ways that uh, the society seems to be telling them. We could do, do a whole hour on that topic, I think. But uh, <laughs> one, one area of reform that you're quite expert on, uh, being with your experience in the area of informatics and how to use uh, computer data in medicine, um, is how to make medical records electronic. And, and this is, again, an idea that's a good idea in principle, but in practice, uh, it, things seem to go awry and actually become a bit of a nightmare. Uh, it's, it's very true. Uh, there's actually a, a recent paper that was just published that it said that about, oh, 80% of people in the United States feel that electronic medical records are a great thing and that they will help improve efficiency in health care. And that's largely because that's what everyone's being told over and over and over again from the president down, uh, that, that, gosh, we can really fix health care if we can only provide enough technology or throw enough technology at it. Here's the problem, though, and the problem is that that, that the technology that we're inserting into the clinic is for the most part, uh, in the clinics and the hospitals, is for the most part 
not something that was created for doctors and created with the problems and, and workflow of doctors in mind, but they're technologies that were taken from perhaps other applications, other, other aspects of the world, um, and, and people said, well, gee, uh, why don't we apply this to healthcare? And uh, we'll make an electronic medical record out of it. And so you have companies that are as diverse as Siemens and General Electric uh, and Cerner and, and Epic, all of whom um, basically um, are, are peddling goods um, which are very difficult to use and often cause as many problems or errors as they fix in the clinical setting. Now, this might have been okay for a while because doctors and hospitals, being rational people, said, look, this doesn't help us at all, and so we're not going to buy it. <laughs> right. And they did the rational thing, which is to say, <laughs> until you come up with something that's going to benefit our patients and benefit us, we're just going to not do anything. We're right. not going to buy your junk. Right. Uh, and then in 2009, the federal government stepped in and said, we think electronic medical records are a good idea, Therefore, we're going to set up a $17 billion fund to um, uh, help doctors and hospitals buy them. But even more than that, we're going to set up a requirement that by 2015, doctors must use fancy, um, uh, elaborate electronic medical records or they will be punished. Uh, by taking away um, their income and taking away their ability to practice under certain circumstances. And what this did was essentially represented a takeover of the healthcare industry by the computer technology industry. Yeah. Um, such that if you're a patient and you're in the hospital and the computers are being used to um, prescribe your medications or, or um, help you with your, your um, uh, treatment, there's an excellent chance that the software that's being used will cause as many or more problems and sometimes more severe problems than would have occurred under the old pen and paper regular method of, of doing business. Uh, and there is actually a, now a database um, the, which was set up, the FDA, the Federal Food and Drug Administration, which regulates virtually everything in healthcare, has elected not to regulate electronic medical records for reasons that are pretty unclear. I mean, medical records uh, and medical uh, order entry systems are potentially life-threatening or life-saving systems, and you would think they would be regulated along with everything else. That hasn't happened. And there are numerous instances, and an entire database has been set up now to record adverse events that have resulted as a result of using electronic systems that go, that, that go wrong. <laughs> um, and there are hundreds and hundreds of events flowing into those databases uh, pretty much on a daily basis. <laughs> Well, I think this is an example of you know bureaucrats getting together with vendors of what you call the uh, the medical industrial complex, which is probably a good good description of it, uh, directing things by fiat that uh, have not been thought out well enough, or or perhaps have been well thought out but uh, not with the patient's uh, best interest in mind. Well, and getting back to the theme of the book, healthcare is basically it's a machine in which you're trying to. Um, uh, take uh, inputs, uh, patients and medications and tests and everything like that, and make an output of a better patient. 
And all of these things are basically throwing, throwing wrenches into the machine and actually making it harder and harder to function. Uh, which is making the whole process more expensive. You can imagine that if you've got a factory and you're throwing sand into all the gears, that factory is going to be more expensive to run in which, than one in which people are oiling the, the machines instead. And what we have is a situation where um, uh, many outside parties, people who don't know a darn thing about actually taking care of patients or, or, uh, or uh, making the, the, the country healthier, are making decisions uh, on behalf of doctors and patients every day that are actually throwing throwing sand and wrenches into the into the machinery. We're speaking with Dr. Douglas Predney about his excellent book, Overhauling America's Healthcare Machine. I just want to throw out one personal example of what you were just you know talking about. Someone gets an idea we're going to do it a certain way. Uh, I worked for a, a, a clinic that got this bright idea thanks to their administrator uh, <laughs> overthinking things that instead of, dic- we, instead of writing things down, we would just dictate everything. So they spent a lot of money on this computerized system. We went in there. We learned how to do it. And I said, okay, now how do I draw pictures? And they said, oh, you, you can't draw pictures. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, how do I, how, do, how do I get the data down while I'm interacting with the patient like I normally do, which is infinitely more efficient? They said, oh, you can't do it that way. I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to do it your way. And most of the rest of us agree we did not we did not go down that road. Well, and, and it's a it's an excellent example. In fact, there's an entire new industry that's being spawned now of what are called medical scribes, and these are people who are hired for uh, sometimes they're medical students or or um, you know part time uh, part time workers, and sometimes they're actually very expensive people with medical knowledge who would get paid up to seventy five thousand dollars a year. And their job is to do nothing but take the information that's being gathered at the time the doctor is gathering the information about the physical exam and the history and type it into the computer, which is so difficult to use. So, wow. so there's another, another complete example of spawning an industry of people who don't provide care uh, as a result of, of, of mandates that say, to save money and streamline things, we're going to require to you, you to use this complex computer system. Well, your book is full of these examples. And again, the basic thrust, when I first had your book pitched to me, I was quite taken by the fact that uh, you, uniquely almost, were addressing this issue that you, you hear this statistic that in Germany, we talked about this last time, the Germans are very efficient. They don't put up with a lot of nonsense. The Germans, my understanding was, spend 8% of their healthcare dollars on administrative costs, whereas all these things we're talking about today and all these extra uh, bells and whistles and all this great difficulty of hiring medical scribes, under that category of administration, we spend something between 30 and 40%. That's correct. And, and in fact, just to get paid... Uh, your your average doctor will spend 15% of their gross income. That's that's out of every every $100 they bill and take in, they will spend $15 simply trying to get paid. Now compare that to your attorney or an accountant. The attorneys and accountants no, on paid. average spend $1 <laughs> out of every 100 oh, to get paid. There's no question this is dramatically increasing the cost of health care and, and unfortunately, again, I, I wish it weren't true, but the Affordable Care Act is likely to make things much worse rather than better. 
Well, you're going to come back and we're going to spend an, a, some time discussing what the options are to, uh, t- to try and fix this system. But I think, I think it's time well spent to talk about uh, false leads and some false promises and some ideas about things that people throw around that they claim are going to fix things but are just, are just not going to. One thing you, you hear about is physician report cards. And I know that Dr. Dean Adele used to love to bash on those on his radio program, uh, pointing out that if your doc you know, is taking the tough cases, then he or she can get a bad grade on some simple-minded judgment of how their outcomes are. But it's not taking into account the difficulty of the patients they are treating. Correct. A great example of that is in New York State. Um, uh, they decided to uh, report the mortality rates associated with uh, physicians who are doing uh, heart surgery. So cardiac surgery. And so they said, well, tell you what, uh, we are, are going to report all the mortality rates for all of the physicians. And physicians who have high mortality rates, we're going to warn people about them and, and warn them not to use them. Well, part of the problem was many of the physicians with the highest mortality rates were those who took on the most difficult patients, patients who no one else would touch because it was so dangerous to do the operation, right, right. but if they didn't operate, there was no way to save the patient. <laughs> and uh, what's, what's interesting about that is, is, is that many of these quality initiatives um, have morphed into, uh, into things that are, that are not only useless, but expensive and perverse. Um, another great example of this is um, uh, the, the so-called pay-for-performance initiatives, of which there are a bunch of them in the U.S. And, and in fact, uh, by 2015, every doctor in the entire country is going to have to participate in pay-for-performance initiatives. And ironically, what's been found in research study after research study, many of them published within the last few weeks, as the studies get bigger and bigger, covering hundreds of thousands of patients, hundreds of hospitals, and thousands of doctors, is that none of the pay-for-performance initiatives appear to do any good at all. In other words, in in England, they they did a study involving 400,000 patients looking at the effect of pay-for-performance initiatives on blood pressure. And they found that doctors who were paid to to um, um, do certain things that the government said they ought to do, um, they didn't have any better performance or any worse performance than doctors who weren't told to do that. It's, and, and there was a study that was just published in Health Affairs here in the United States of a similar sort of thing, again, which showed that over a five-year period, the people who did pay for performance um, had a little faster compliance and a little faster results in terms of, of, of uh, what was expected of them. But after five years, there was no difference in people who were given report cards and grades and paid to perform and the people who weren't. I think one of the big problems here is we've lost track of why it is people do what they do. <laughs> if doctors went into medicine, generally speaking, to do a good job. And if you didn't want to do a good job, you were never going to get through medical school and training. And now what we're saying is, for everything you do, we want proof that you're going to do a good job, and we want proof that you're qualified, and we want this and we want that, all of which is actually detracting from doctors' ability to do their job at all. Um, and, and another great example of this, or what, what's called accreditation, 
whereby doctors in the U.S. are having to spend more and more time and more and more money to prove to third parties, usually third parties that make a lot of money by testing them and reporting their scores and everything else, um, just to remain in practice. So, so it used to be, for example, that if you were you were um, uh, went into internal medicine or surgery, you were board certified at the time you graduated from all of your training. And as long as you continued your continuing medical education, you remain board certified. Well, at some point, the organizations who, who um, create these board certifications said to themselves, well, hey, we can make more money if we require people to renew their board certification because it costs thousands and thousands of dollars sure. to take these tests. Yeah. And, uh, and so then there, there, there came that, gosh, your, your, your uh, certification would now only last 10 years. Then you'll be, have to spend thousands of dollars to recertify. And that kind of thing, again, is adding dramatically to the cost of health care. And there is not a single study anywhere, anywhere, that has ever shown that that process or spending those extra dollars or asking people to recertify or even performing most continuing medical education has done any good whatsoever or has ever provided any benefit whatsoever. There are certain types of uh, continuing medical education that have been shown to be helpful, um, but by and large, they're not the types that are required. Well, I, I like the solutions you offer at the end of the book. Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to get into those today, but we will have you back for sure. But I just want to go out with the fact that in this great healthcare debate that's uh, still raging, you hear politicians, insurance companies, HMOs, they talk about, well, we have we have the best healthcare in the world. But of course, at the beginning of your book, you looked into that and said, well, that that platitude falls apart when you ask what they mean by better. And the stats actually show that when you compare us to the 30 countries of the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation, were in fact just above Portugal and South Korea, number 22 out of 30. There may be a lot of different reasons for that, but spending enough money is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, we've proven that. <laughs> well, Dr. Doug, Douglas Prednia, thanks for speaking with us again, and doggone it, we're going to come back. We've, we've certainly set the stage now for what's wrong, and now the pressure's on to come back and see what we can do to fix it, shall we? It's been a pleasure, and uh, I, I look forward to, to talking again um, very soon. Again, if uh, people are interested in this, you can certainly access my blog, www.roadtohealth.com. And uh, if there's anything else uh, uh, I can help with, uh, please don't hesitate to let me know. Let's plug the book one more time. It is titled Overhauling America's Healthcare Machine, subtitled Stop the Bleeding and Save Trillions. And I know that our, our listeners are going to want to get copies because I just can't recommend your book highly enough. Thank you very much. All righty. 